Well, this morning we spoke about um, the children of Israel that were stuck in Egypt and how God had to get them unstuck out of a bad place that they'd settled into. Clearly, Egypt was a bad place. Slavery and bondage clearly was bad. There was no debate about that. Their stuckness, as I explained this morning, was just complex for us to understand why it was difficult for them to leave and why they failed after they left. But tonight, we're going to look at another person that was stuck. The difference is this guy is stuck in a good place. We're going to read about the cripple, the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. And the title of this message is Step Out of Stuck. Step Out of Stuck. We call those boots Wellington boots in England. What do you call them here? Well, that, that. I'll, I'll just stick to boots, I think, okay? And then we'll be very European. I'll just say boots, okay? Um, but I'll refer to that picture, that image. Some of you learn better visually than you do audibly. So now you have a visual to stick in your head beyond the audio that you're hearing. Because I want you to really get this idea tonight. I think it'll really help you beyond tonight and help people in your world that are stuck. You know, being stuck is terrible. And lots of us have been stuck in life. Some of you are stuck here tonight. And there are people on your minds that are not here that need to hear this. So, John 5, 1 to 15. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there was in Jerusalem a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Remember that little phrase. I'll come back to it. Five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in that condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, at once the man was cured, picked up his mat, and walked. This man had been at this pool of Bethesda possibly for decades. He'd certainly been paralyzed in this condition for almost four decades. We don't know how old he was, but clearly most of his life, whether he was born this way or he had an accident, we don't know. Bethesda apparently was a place where you could go and get a miracle. Now, we don't know what that means. There's no evidence in Scripture anybody ever did get a miracle. We don't know anybody in Scripture that got a miracle at Bethesda. We just know there was a place where apparently an angel occasionally, we don't know how occasionally, maybe once every six months, maybe once a year, if he'd been there this long, it suggests to me the chances to get in the pool to get a healing were not regular. It was long gaps between. So the idea was an angel would come and stir the water, whatever that meant. And they'd figured out, or rumor has it, that if you're the first person in the pool, when the angel touches the water, you are the one and the only one to get a miracle. And then you wait until the next time and hope you're the first into the pool is what's going on here. I suppose the people at Bethesda knew about Jesus and Jesus knew about them because they're both in the same healing business. And people that are in the same business in a small town 
kind of get to know about each other. So I think Jesus knew about Bethesda. This is the only gospel is John's where we find out about this encounter. So Jesus, the, the miracle worker, Jesus, the healer of people like this guy, rocks up to Bethesda. He deliberately, I think, decided to go that day to Bethesda. He'd heard about it. He could have gone low profile. He could have gone and scoped it out in the evening. He could have found out about it without going at all. But he walks into the middle of this scenario I'm describing to you now. And typical of Jesus, he, he finds out who's the worst case scenario here. Who's, who's the worst case? Who's been here the longest? Who, who is the one that's beyond hope above anybody else here? Because they're all feeling they're hopeless. And they point out to him this man and say to him, well, he's been 38 years in that condition. And Jesus picks the worst case scenario and goes over to him and asks him a question, which on the surface of it appears to me to be very rude, if not very offensive. To ask a crippled person, do you want to get well, seems to be somebody's having a joke here. <laughs> this is like you going to a person in a wheelchair and saying to them, do you want to get well? It seems insulting. It is certainly not politically correct. It is rude. It is borderline deliberately mischievous and offensive to say that to someone clearly all of his life. Everybody at the pool of Bethesda, possibly hundreds of people, were clearly there for one reason. They're there to get a miracle. So to walk up to the worst case scenario and say, do you want to get well, seems a ridiculously out of touch, out of sync, rude, offensive, non-compassionate, non-caring question. If you've walked with God for any length of time, one of the things you figure out is, if God asks you something obvious, something not obvious is going on. Like when the first question God ever asked was, Adam, where are you? It was not because God couldn't find him. It's because Adam didn't know where he was. So God's asking him to ask himself, where are you? Where has where humanity gone? What has happened in the garden? It's not, it's not God trying to find Adam. So something obvious is not going on here. Something not obvious is going on here when he says, do you want to get well? Now, this is a time in history and a place in history. And there are still places like this in the world now, as you know where if you were crippled and invalid from an accident or born that way, your life really was over to a large degree. Because this is before prosthetics. There's no wheelchairs. There's no crutches. There's, there's no way to continue to be mobile if you lost the use of your limbs. Uh, these people were so far gone, they couldn't even hustle for a few euros, you know, on the corner, like blind Bartimaeus did in another part of Scripture. He's at least got mobility to beg. These people, that is not an option for them. They can't, they can't physically move around to beg and hustle for a few, a few coins. So these people are the end of the line. And Jesus goes into the end of the line to the worst case scenario and says, do you want to get well? Now, what's going on here is this. Jesus is asking him, do you want to get well? Because he's probing, he's inquiring, he's investigating how much damage Bethesda has done to him. Because Bethesda is a place that promises miracles, but we don't know that anybody is getting a miracle. And what's interesting 
is he didn't say to Jesus, when Jesus said, you want to get well, he didn't say yes. You think, wouldn't you? That when the miracle worker's here and says, do you want to get well? He didn't ask anybody else. He asked you. He didn't say to him, yes, touch me now. His answer is really what's going on here. His answer to Jesus was this. Well, clearly, you're new around here. Let me educate you to how things work. One of us, once a year, gets a miracle if we're the first into the pool. My problem, Jesus, is that whenever the angel stirs the pool, I can't get in because I have no one to help me get into the pool. Some of these people at the pool have friends that hang out with them 24-7 for months or years. In case that when the angel comes, their friends make sure they're the first into the pool. He said, I don't have people. He said, you know, for the first five years, people came and hung out with me on a shift basis. But I've been here 25 years or whatever it was. So I, I don't have help anymore. And I, I'm, I moved too slow to get in. So, my, so he's educating Jesus about the system. He's saying to Jesus, we have a system here. And the system is one person, once a year, who is the fastest, gets a miracle. Not even realizing that as he describes the system, he's also saying to Jesus, this is a terrible system. This system is rigged for failure. And he's stuck in this system. They all are. But the, the possibility that it could be your turn next, you know, desperate people, Desperate people will stay in a system that is stacked for failure and rigged against them because they're so desperate and have no more options. They'd rather hope that their turn and their time will come. And so they park up, they stay in a system that's not working. Yeah. And what a system does, watch this carefully, a system organizes your problem. So this man had organized stuckness. He had organized hopelessness. He had organized helplessness. He had organized failure. Because he said to Jesus, I am in a system. I am in a queue. I am stood in line. I'm waiting for my turn and the system has not yet favored me. So he's educating Jesus about what's going on. And what a system does is a system takes your problems, takes our problems and magnifies them to become established in your mind, in your life as a system. And some of you have very organized problems. Seriously, when someone gets up here and says something that sounds a little bit too simplistic, what you say to you, because and I teach this in my communication masterclass around the world that I do, that when anyone is speaking like I am now, there are always two voices in the room. There's what I am saying to you, and then there's what you are saying to you about what I say to you. And what you say to you is by far the most powerful voice in your life and in my life. Your self-talk, will always determine outcomes, not what anyone else says to you. So what this man has got is a very damaging, very containing self-talk because we're in a system. 
And a system organizes your problem. And some of you, when we say something from here, you say to yourself, like this guy, it's just not that simple, Jesus. Do you want to get well? And he said out loud what he'd been saying to himself for decades. It's just not that simple. Can I just educate you about how I'm in this situation? And some of you have very organized fear. You have very organized failure. You have very organized regret. You have very organized sense of hopelessness. You are very organized warrior. Some of you have very organized negativity. Some of you have very organized unforgiveness. It's not that you just don't forgive someone. It has become so organized that it has become a system of belief in your life. And when someone says you should forgive, you say to yourself about them, it's just not that simple. You do not know what they did to me. And if you did, you wouldn't say that. That's what this man's saying to Jesus. If you knew the system, you would not say to me, do you want to get well? That's a stupid thing to say. People around here don't say that to each other because we all know how the system works. So this man is stuck. And some of you are stuck because your problems are systemic. Your problem has now become a system and every single day you live inside that system. Your system has organized your failure. It has organized your stuckness. And so it's just not simple anymore. It was simple months or years ago. But now the longer you stay by the pool, as it were, by your own mental Bethesda, the, more, the longer you stay around your own emotional Bethesda, you now listen, but you think it's just not that easy. And you defend yourself by answering on behalf of the system. So what a system is doing is the system is organizing people's failure. And Bethesda is a place that promises you a miracle, but it can continually under-delivers. And worse still, it blames you for the failure. So Bethesda promises a miracle. And when Jesus said, do you want to get well? He said, it's my fault. I haven't got a miracle yet because I can't get into the pool. So Bethesda promises you a miracle that holds you there. It continually disappoints because the system is failing all of them. And then it says it's your fault because you can't get in the pool on time. So this is how, and I'm reframing however you've seen Bethesda before. You've read this many times, some of you. And I'm reframing how you think of Bethesda because we all have Bethesdas in our life. Somewhere in our life, we all have a Bethesda scenario, somewhere where we are hoping for breakthrough, but we get stuck. Our problems live with us long enough to become organized. And now we have organized versions of what at the beginning was quite simple. Now it's very complicated. Now, not only is he in a system that organizes his problem, that justifies his problem, he also has a cultural support system, which is the other people around him that are also in a as bad or worse condition than him. And you've got to imagine for a moment that this guy spent all his life like this. We don't know whether he was even physically able to be upright. We don't know how crippled he was. But imagine if he spent all of his life for decades physically in this position, laying down or totally on his back. Now imagine years like this and whatever you turned or looked, there is someone as bad or worse than you. 
If you've ever been ill for any period of your life, you'll know how much it takes over your conversations. If you've been in bed sick, or you have had some illness, or you've battled a cancer, or something that is a prolonged issue, or someone in your family, you will know the longer it goes on, the more it fills every waking moment. You get fed up of answering the question, how are you today? Don't you? You get fed up of texts that say, how is it going? Did you sleep last night? You have conversations endlessly about medication and other medications working. Believe me, uh, you know, our family are now 16 months in. Our youngest grandchild is turned three last week. But when she was one, she was diagnosed with cancer. So for almost two years now, we've been battling cancer in her life. And so the, the idea that illness completely fills your world and every conversation becomes something to do with that. Imagine if that was decades, as is the case with this man. And everybody you talk to is as ill as you are. What that is, is it's a cultural support system. So not only is he supported by an organized stuckness, he has a cultural support group. Everybody around him, how are you today? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not good. And no doubt over the years, many had died waiting, whose, body, whose bodies had been carried away, and he'd seen that happen, wondering would he get a miracle, or would his body be carried away? You've got to understand that, 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 when, that when your life physically... When he's physically like this, hospitalized and crippled, or this is how you feel inside yourself. This is how stuck you feel inside yourself. And what happens is you start doing life with other people who are stuck as you. Because when you're stuck, you don't want to do life with people that are free. Because they just irritate you. When you're stuck and you're stuck in a system you, it's now become an organized stuckness. You don't want to do life with people that are free and don't have your problems. When you're sick, when you're miserable, when you're depressed, when you're stuck, you want to do life with people that are stuck that are not going to say to you, do you want to get well? You don't want friends that say to you, do you want to get well? Because you get the feel that they don't really understand the problem here. So you finish up building relationships like this man had with people that are as stuck as you are. And stuck people can't help other stuck people get free. So some of you aren't just have organized stuckness. You have now built relationships around your stuckness because misery loves company. And now all your conversations are about degrees of stuckness and you swap stuck stories with people that are stuck like you. And some of them it's international conversations and texting conversations, and now you, are, now you are drawn to other people that are stuck, and, that, and it becomes like a group at Bethesda. You have your own group Bethesda stuckness going on. Happens all the time for us in life. Happens in and outside the church, and that's what's going on for this guy here. So he's in a system, and he's involved in a cultural support group. A culture supports, a system organizes. Then I want you to think about these colonnades. And because colonnades are not, a, are not a normal part of our conversation, I don't think any of you recently said, I was thinking about colonnades, were you? Yeah. No. Here's a picture of colonnades. So you know what they are. Now colonnades, of course, you'll recognize this architecture all across ancient Europe. 
Colonnades were the equivalent of today's air conditioning systems. Colonnades were built to create shade for an outdoor life culture. And this is where you'd meet your friends and have coffee and hang out and do business and trade and go out with the family. And colonnades were an ingenious piece of architecture because wherever you were in the day, there was a part of it that was always shaded from the sun. And so colonnades were built to provide shade. And this pool of Bethesda is surrounded by five of them, five covered colonnades. What colonnades were doing is providing shade. In other words, what colonnades are, colonnades metaphorically, are, are, are a structure that's providing shade for your stuckness. Because the shade the colonnades provided at Bethesda made waiting more comfortable. And so this is another level and layer of stuckness. He has a very organized problem. He has a culturally supported problem by the people around him. And now he has structural support from the physical colonnades that are there, shading him so that his waiting is made more comfortable. The colonnades facilitate waiting and say to him, you can wait here as long as you like because I will shade you from the sun. And we all have colonnades of the mind. We have got to a place, some of us, with our stuckness that it is so structured in our mind that it has become institutionalized. When something becomes structural, it becomes a permanent construction, a permanent thing in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, and it becomes, it becomes institutionalized. Some of your problems are institutionalized in your own mind, in your own life. That's how stuck this, and I think the five colonnades mention is for people like me to go back and find out what perhaps that means. I know it's not your job, but it's my job as a Bible investigator. To perhaps see something here that's an insight that most of you will just see as narrative and some stuff is just that in the Bible. But this is fascinating to me that there's water and there's shade. Hang around here, all you sick people. When a structure gets involved in the world systems, it becomes like apartheid. Apartheid began without a system. It was just whites despising, hating, oppressing blacks. Eventually, things like apartheid became a system, and now it is an organized hatred. Then it becomes a cultural hatred. Then it gets law and policy and government law enforcement backing. Now it's a colonnade. Now the legal system shades the culture and the system that's evil. The legal system shades it. It becomes institutionalized if you like, in society, in the same way that happens physically and legally and governmentally, it happens the same way in your head and in mine. And we find voices and people that shade our problem and lead us to believe we can stay there longer. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to create discomfort for this man. He's trying to step into his organized stuckness and say to him, I have an idea. Now, I don't know how Jesus said this to him because the Bible, um, the Bible's like receiving a text or an email and reading a tone into it. Sometimes if you assume there's a tone in that mail, it all goes downhill from there. So we don't know what tone of voice Jesus said to him, John, to get well. I imagine, 
I imagine it sounded, I imagine it sounded like, by the way, you could have done, you could have done this any time in the last 20 years. Do you want to get well? Get up and go home. I think it came across like this was always an option, but you'd never dreamed of it because no one around here is ever saying that to each other. I think tonight, the tone of voice that God may say this to you in is God may just be nudging you saying, hey, are you ready for a new idea? Um, have you thought about this? Because, because this, this, though it's a massive intervention in this man's life, I get the feeling that Jesus was almost casual in his tone. Well, if I were you, I'd get up and go home. Because trust me, no one, no one is saying this to anybody here because it just sounds so rude. Get up and go home. How am I going to do that? I'm a cripple. Would be what you'd say to yourself that would stop you saying it. So you wouldn't say it. And no one's saying to these people, get up and go home, because everybody understands. These people are stuck. It's a system. It's a culture. It is organized. It, it, has, got, it has got shade. And some of you are, are, are in relationships and friendships, and you're working for companies, and you're living in neighborhoods, and you are involved in internal conversations, internal ways of thinking and believing that is so established that you need someone that you need someone to come and challenge you that doesn't care about being your friend. Sometimes, sometimes your friends have to be provocative. Sometimes your friends have to have to risk you deleting them from the WhatsApp channel. Sometimes they have to say to you, hey. I'm sick and tired of this, aren't you? Yeah. Do you want to get well? Do you want this year to be better than last year? Sometimes you've got to risk saying that to someone, knowing that they're going to reply to you with, well, it's a system, it's a culture, it's it. And so we don't say it. Um, and Jesus said to him, why don't you get up and go home? In other words, why don't you jump the queue? Why don't you beat the system? Why don't you stop waiting for your turn because it's never coming? And why don't you create your turn? Make yourself a turn. Why don't you jump the queue? Now in England, if you jump the queue, they'll kill you. Because I think the British invented queuing. But Jesus said to him, you need to jump the queue. And some of you this week need to jump the queue. Some of you need to find some courage this week. Because if you're going to step out of stuck, let me see those boots again. Put my screen back up there. My, my Wellington boots. Now look, you can see here, can't you? Someone clearly used to be stood in those boots. So imagine, imagine that you stood in those boots. And imagine I'm stood over here on dry ground, shouting at you, hey, get out of there. Step out of there. Don't stay there anymore. And you stuck in those boots would, not, would probably say to me, hello, can't you see how stuck I am? I'm stuck and I'm sinking all the time would be what you'd shout back to me. And I would shout back to you something like this. Well, why don't you step out of your boots? And you would say to me, what? I can't do that. My boots cost me a lot of money. My boots are protecting me from the mud. My boots are the only insulation I have against the awful mud and the stuckness I have. And I want to say to you tonight by saying that, to keep that image up, you and your boots are not the same thing. 
It's not you that's stuck. It's your boots that are stuck. It's the system that's sticking you. It's the culture that's sticking you. You're fine. You, you can get up and go home. But no one's telling you that. Because we're all serving the boots. We're all trying to keep the boots. Sometimes, sometimes take your mat and go home. Sometimes you've got to leave the mat. Sometimes you've got to walk away from your investment and your commitment and your attachment. And the thought of putting a naked foot into that is what scares you. But some of you are going to tell you, it doesn't matter how you get to dry land. It doesn't matter whether it looks cool or you look cool or not. If you have to crawl on your hands and knees through the mud to get unstuck, metaphorically, then you've got to do that. If you've got to look messy and look like a failure and look weak, then you're going to have to do that in the face of other people that are too proud to do it. You've got to, be, you've got to have the courage to step out of your stuck. However it looks to other people is what Jesus is saying to this guy. Get up and walk. He could have panicked and thought, if I try and walk, I'm going to fall over. I'll look a complete idiot. I suppose was going on in his self-talk. It's fascinating to me that <laughs> no sooner has the guy started to leave his stuckness. This will happen for some of you, so heads up. No sooner has he begun to leave his stuckness than I would think maybe within a few meters of leaving Bethesda, he bumps into the Pharisees. And the Pharisees say to him, uh, who told you to carry your mat? It's the Sabbath. They couldn't care less that he'd had a miracle. They just wanted to put on him another system on top of the system that had held him for decades. And so they said to him, who told you to do that? And the guy said, I have no idea. How cool is Jesus? We'd have had the national TV crew filming it for church news. We'd have had it on the internet. We'd have had the miracle film. We'd have had the guy telling his story so that we could grow our churches through it. Jesus, Jesus just didn't even give him his name, didn't give him a calling card. He didn't know who he was. He said, I have no idea, actually. The guy didn't tell me his name. It says, Jesus found him later in the temple. Found the crippled guy later walking in the temple. And Jesus said to him, listen, go and sin no more unless something worse happens. Now, hang on a minute. Go and sin no more. Well, this guy has been crippled by the pool of Bethesda for decades. What kind of sin was he into? He was hardly the man about town. He wasn't down the bar drinking or gambling, or womanizing, this guy cannot sin. This guy would have loved to have sinned, <laughs> wouldn't he? This guy, this guy wasn't able to sin. So when Jesus said, sin no more, you think, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? This guy's been in one place for decades. What kind of sin are you talking about? And perhaps the greatest sin sometimes of our lives and of his life is surrendering your life to a system and a culture, and a structure that keeps you stuck for decades, months, weeks of your life. Perhaps the greatest sin Jesus is speaking to him about is the sin of surrendering your life to a system that keeps you stuck in a place that you desperately need to get out of. Because don't you know this is the Sabbath was another system that was going to rob him of the miracle by putting another system on him. And Jesus said, you need to 
You need to resist it. You need to say no. And, and this week, as you step out of your stuck, don't look for something grand or some big, some big um, confrontation or some big statement. This week, just start with something small. This week, if you want to step out of stuck and take a step, take one faltering step, this week, all you need to do is just do one simple thing every day. Just learn to say no to someone. Just learn not to call someone back. Just learn to not get involved in that conversation. Just start something simple. It will not feel dramatic. It will not feel big. But if every day you'll do a simple thing, some of you have to, have to, have to be rude. Some of you are so afraid of being accused of being rude by saying no to someone because some, some of your support system are family and friends and they don't want you free. They like you the way that you are because they have a place in your life. They're not sure they will if you leave Bethesda. They feel you might leave them behind. So some of you got to get the strength to say no to people that are going to accuse you of being rude or unloving or not a friend. Some of you this week have to risk being rude and risk appearing like you're full of ego and full of yourself. Some of you have to risk that this week to get free. And some of you are too nice and too kind and too pleasant and too people-pleasing to get out of your Bethesda. So this week, don't think people are going to help you. Some people are going to resist you because they like the fact that you're stuck because they are too. And so don't look for something grand this week, but if every day you will take a little step or another little step or if, you, or if you're on your hands and knees, this isn't about a fashion parade. If all you do this week is you move like this, if all you do this week is crawl and you feel that this, what I'm doing now, is how you feel inside. If all you're doing at the moment is crawling, I've got to tell you, that's all you need to do. All you've got to do is keep moving. Is, is don't stop. It doesn't matter that you're not moving cool or you look cool. you just got to keep moving. Forgot to do my press-ups today. So I'm going to do my press-ups. 